welcome to the Bad Vibes Club. Thanks for joining us. Today we have the first of presumably six episodes. That sounds like a lot of episodes now I'm saying it. Anyway, first of six episodes about the new Adam Curtis TV series that is called Can't Get You Out of My Head. And in this podcast, I discussed the first episode with my friends Andrea Frankie, uh, an artist who I've known since we went to open school East together, and Ross Jardine, who is the other half of Radio Anti and was also at open school East. Also joining us is Andrea's son, Oscar, who was forced to watch Adam Curtis by his mum and chimes in a few times to help us out. One thing to say is that the reason we're doing these podcasts is because my research at the moment at Kingston where I'm doing a PhD is in, I'm looking quite a lot at the tone of artists who work with information as in how historical or theoretical information is presented. So I'm quite interested in Adam Curtis in terms of the way he uses voice and archive footage and titles. Me and Ross, I think it's fair to say, are bigger fans of Curtis than Andrea is. That comes across, uh, I think, in the way we're talking about his work. But in general, just to say this isn't some weird Curtis fan club, but neither is it a Curtis hatathon. Either of those things would be a weird thing to do. Hopefully it's just a generally interesting conversation whether you have or haven't kept up to date with Adam Curtis's videography. There's some important things we need to mention. At some point, Andrea mentioned the idea of post-truth for eight-year-olds. And this was a, a series of workshops she did with primary school children all about post-truth and different kinds of knowledge. At some other point, Andrea mentions a documentary that we both watched on Nexium, which is a cult uh, slash multi-level marketing scheme from America. The documentary we watched was called The Vow, and you can find it. I think it's HBO. Find it online somewhere. I mention an essay in the Tribune about Adam Curtis. At one point, I mentioned a news story about a police inquiry. Um, I'll quote it here. Police unable to explain disproportionate use of powers against minorities report fines. A watchdog says that more than 35 years after the introduction of stop and search, no force fully understands the impact. Andrea mentions her dad at one point, uh, just to be clear on that, he's a university lecturer and professor in architecture in Peru, I think. And at one point, Andrea also mentions a filmmaker who she refers to as the German Adam Curtis. And the name of that person is Lutz Dambeck. At some point, we're talking about Ariella Azule, who wrote a book called The Civil Contract of Photography. And I'll put links to all these things in the show notes. Um, enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like discussed in the next episodes of this series, then get in touch. I'm interested to hear what people thought of the Adam Curtis series. And yeah, any feedback about the podcast is always welcome. All right. Thanks so much. See you on the other side. We are here, officially here tonight, to start a podcast. You know you've committed now, so we have to do six of these. We're going to watch all six Adam Curtis uh, episodes, and we're going to have a little discussion after each one. And this is the first of those discussions about... What was the film? What was it called? What was the episode called? Something... To do with power, I think. I think he, it was power in the title. 
something I thought it was something to do with blood. Tiger Mountain or something. Wolf Mountain? Oh, I mean, Wolf Mountain's like the, the movie that he talks about. So maybe yeah, I think that's... The, oh, sorry, you're talking about the title of the... Um, this We're off to a great start, guys. This is really good. <laughs> I don't know Wolf Mountain is the name of the movie that Lily Lou is in. All right. I'm going to Google it. We're going to start off with this. Oh, no, I can... I've already Googled everything. The series is called Can't Get You Out of My Head and the first part is called, I now can't find it again, Blood and Wolf Mountain. It's the name of the episode and the name of the film that Jiang Xiang is in. So we have Andrea Frankie, we have Ross Jardine and we have special guest consultant Oscar Frankie in the house. That's me. <laughs> so what, why, are we, why are we doing this? Because I know why I'm doing this podcast. I'm doing it because every now and again people compare my work to Adam Curtis and I never know what to say. Like, should I be embarrassed? Should I be excited or honoured? Or should I be trying to change my work? So I thought I'd really kind of watch this series and think about what he does. And so what, why is anyone else interested in this? I'm interested in it because I've hated Curtis films forever. And when I did that whole post-truth for uh, eight-year-olds, uh, Adam Curtis was my example of like manipulative, bad video essays. But now everybody hates him. So I don't want to hate him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now I yeah, feel maybe, the uh, maybe there's something there. So you're, you're just being a contrarian, Andrea. Well, it's not just being contrarian. It's that it's... Um, it's that realization that you start hating something and you stop paying attention to it. And I think it's just like that moment of like, oh, maybe I need to like revisit my, or like force myself to look at it again. I don't know. What about you, Ross? I, d- I just thought it'd be nice to spend some time with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've always watched the Adam Curtis films just as entertainment, really, and never really engaged with them that much. And I thought that, because there's six of them this time, the format that we're thinking of, of doing six discussions around each episode, sort of lent itself to thinking about them a bit more and sort of doing some research in between episodes, which, mm. which seems good. And I think it will be interesting to, to, look, to do it like that because I've got a feeling they're, they're going to develop a lot over over the six episodes. I was reading an article about an, an interview with Adam Curtis and I think they do get, they do develop quite a lot. So I think that'll be really an uh, interesting process to kind of think about it a bit more. And what about you, Oscar? I'm just doing it because she's doing it and I... <laughs> You're forced, you have no choice. <laughs> <laughs> You're just along for the ride. Well, that's good. This is how lockdown works. If you're in the house, you're in the podcast. So first episode, I all I did, I didn't do anything complex. I did a bit of research, but all I mean by that is that I, I have everyone's Wikipedia page to hand. And there's quite a lot of characters that are introduced in this first episode. And I think for me, that, that really struck me as the main feature of this episode, but also as an interesting thing to talk about, because I think... Often when I think of Adam Curtis, I just think of a web of association. So lots and lots of different things being connected together. And I don't really think about how he does that. 
and I'd have to go back and watch other ones. I haven't watched them for a while. And in fact, I missed the last few films he's made. But this one really seemed very, very linear in the sense that he really seemed to be setting up, like being like, this person did this, this person did this, this person did this. Here's one other thing that you need to know. Yeah, he does like an introduction that tells you what he's going to tell you. And at the end, he sets you up for the next episode. It really seemed like a an old school style documentary it didn't really remind me of what i think of when i think of adam curtis yeah i totally agree i watched it with bex the second time but i watched it we watched it last night and bex went on her phone after 20 minutes and watching it with someone else having someone else's perspective in the room on it and bex has never watched an adam curtis film before i was just like this just feels like a second world war documentary <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs> I like it's interesting, and yeah, I yeah, I completely agree. It felt super linear. Everything felt quite connected, and the music. Adria, I was interested that you said in the WhatsApp group that you were fascinated by the music, and I I just felt that the music felt so uh, like applied or something. Like I didn't find the music interesting this time. Well- interesting because that's what I found is um, different from the other ones that to me the other ones like I've always thought that Curtis arguments are flawed like I, I think he has this whole thing where he keeps repeating he doesn't do conspiracy theory but I think that's exactly what he does uh, that's why he also he has to say it at every interview uh, but what I liked about this one um, and me trying to like um, kind of understand it differently is that I felt that he really went for because he's talking about kind of the role of emotions, but I think he's doing an essay that is basically emotion. It's just like epistemic epiphanies and he's trying to make you feel things and the music feels like that. It feels like a force. It's like you're being forced to feel certain things or have certain reactions that are a bit um, at odds with what's, a, with what's on screen or something. Like you feel, it felt that is less manipulative in the sense of constructing like knowledge and it's more... Cause, uh, Matt and I have been watching the Nexium documentaries and, and, and it kind of reminds me more of those techniques mm. of how do you get people to buy into a narrative, to believe things, to feel, to start like having intuitions and sensations. And I don't think necessarily he managed to do it, but he felt like he was trying to do something like that. And I thought that was really interesting. That's what I, I keep thinking about whenever there were like people dancing or or, or music or... I think right at the beginning, I was, when I was watching the second time with Oscar, there was this scene when they're just like following the cameraman outside of the building and everybody's masked from COVID. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? And it's just like, it's just like accessing certain memory, affective memories and emotions and things. Like I say, I've never really thought about the films that much, but reading the interviews, some interviews with him this afternoon, like that is exactly what he is try- like he's trying to do, I think. So there's a quote, I've got a quote here. It says... I'm fundamentally an emotional journalist. Uh, The moods my films create, and possibly the reason why people like that mood, is because somehow it feels real, even though it feels dreamy and odd. It actually gets what's going on in people's heads, which is sort of what realism always is. Yeah, I, I wonder whether that it sort of sticks out more this time or something, because I think... When I read that, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally get that in his other films. 
and the choice of music that he uses and the choice of footage. Whereas I think with this, the episode that we've just watched, it sort of feels a bit more blunt or something. And I don't know whether that's because he's not been as successful in kind of creating those moods and so that you're more aware of it or whether it's something else. I started wondering about the context for the production because the last films he's done have been very, very long films that really stretch, you know, the durational. They're like, a, you know, a three and a half hour long film on the iPlayer that you, you know, you could watch it in sections, obviously, and he probably expects you to, but it's one bit of video. And I wondered if people had said, look, Adam, like that was fun and it was nice to experiment with that, but, or maybe he thought, oh, maybe I'll try and go back to, maybe they just weren't as popular, right? Like I definitely haven't watched the last few Whereas I did watch The Power of Nightmares and The Trap, which are the last times that he did. Oh, and All Watched Over by Machines and Love and Grace. They're the last ones where he did like a, a series format. And I wonder whether he looked at the viewing figures and just thought, oh, maybe I should just try going back to the old series format. And when he did, he found that it just made sense to do a bit of groundwork. Or, so that's one theory, or actually, if I went back and watched those old series, the first episode would always, or the first half an hour, hour long bit of the film would always be setting up the story. And it's just because I tend not to watch them a bit like Ross, you said right at the start, like I tended just to watch them for entertainment, not really be thinking about them as part of a discourse or part of journalism or part of history or anything. And so therefore I never went back and watched them again. So recently when Adam Curtis discourse has like erupted on the internet about, I mean, he is a funny figure like his obsession but anyway but the point being that people people are constantly like critiquing him and I never really thought to give him enough time to critique like to be honest I never thought Curtis references would come up in the art world even though that I know his main art his main audience are probably like 20 year old art students but yeah people recently because I've been making these films that are explicitly about power they and 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 I've been using these techniques of like titles on screen and bright colors and stuff and I now realize that that is that is really a debt to him and some other um, filmmakers but yeah the idea of applying just like watching them with any kind of um, with any reason or like with, with an aim in mind it seemed really alien so watching it again this afternoon was really weird because I was like then I started to actually notice that all these things that he's doing like Michael DeFritis like I didn't know who he was in the film and then when I googled him I was like oh Michael X yeah like I've watched a film about black British history that you know it's like speaks about Michael X I just he just doesn't mention that he's Michael X in the first film because I guess he's setting it up for the next one or something. But I think, but I think that's the thing, that's what annoys me and that's the thing about entertainment and journalism because I remember when we first met and we were open schoolists and one of the films that was um, coming out or was like around at the time was the one on cybernetics and there were like so many wrong conclusions and connections and omissions but at the same time everybody in the art world was just like this is, this is how it is. You know, I saw it in Adam Curtis. He's like, this, you know, company finance, this, this is what happened. And even if people don't necessarily address it as journalism, yeah. they kind of like reproduce it and then it becomes true and the truth. And that's what I find incredibly annoying. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like this, these things have, have like a, an, an, a massive effect that is hard to combat because it's already posing itself. It's, 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 again, a like conspiracy theory, right? He's already saying, I'm just asking a question. I'm just suggesting this connection. So I'm not going to take any responsibility for these things that I'm putting out there. 
But at the same time, those things are causing other things to happen. And maybe this one annoyed me less because he's not making those connections. It is, it is interesting watching it the second time. I kind of realized that he was matching up the form with the content. So he's talking about the associative power. Uh, what's that guy's the DA of New Orleans who he writes that crazy thing to his staff where he's like, you can't use logic or reason. You have to use association. Oh, Jim Garrison. Timon Propin- Propinquity was a memo to his staff. So he sa- he's the DA of New Orleans and he sent a memo to his staff on how to uncover the secret cabal behind the American government, which I just thought was like a really nice thing, like an official memo that's on like headed notepaper that goes out. <laughs> um, and yeah, patterns, not meaning or logic. And then, of course, he's, well, I guess he's kind of talking about how emotion becomes a much more powerful force in the second half of the 20th century, which, of course, are also, I've just been reading Sean Nagai on tone and how tone kind of connects thing connects things. But when you kind of go in to find, to like locate the connections, they're quite hard to kind of place. And I think that's, that's kind of maybe, yeah, maybe it just works slightly better with this, with this subject matter, because that kind of is what we're talking about or what we're watching in the film. That's the bit of history we're watching is people making those connections that aren't really there. And what happens when people start to kind of honor that, honor that pattern finding. So do you think, because I'm quite, I'm quite interested about kind of this progression and part of me hopes but by the end of the six episodes, what he's going to do is unveil what he has been doing. But maybe I'm too optimistic. Mm. As someone who's in uh, currently like writing scripts for video essays and making them, I think having watched it again today and I watched it with subtitles, I think he's he kind of is doing that in the script. But because we tend to watch these things, well, obviously we watch them as vid- videos. We're not really like, and we listen to the voice rather than reading it. It just kind of disappears into the ether with, video and i don't know he's still i don't think he will basically is what i'm saying i think he'll kind of drop little hints it's not that's not quite what i mean but like he'll kind of like refer to it throughout but i don't think he'll reveal it as a as a kind of meta or structuralist technique or something i think that's what i like about the music because i feel like the music bits they just kick me out yeah of the narrative and to me that i really enjoy that in his other films i feel like i'm being fed this thing and it's almost like all these connections are coming and you don't have time to really assess if you should be accepting them or not. Well, in this film, in this one, I just was kicked out all the time. Every time a weird music dancing scene came out, I was kicked out of the thing and I had to go back again. And I really, I mean, I love clunkiness as an aesthetic, for sure. I think they're always the best bits in Adam Curtis films. Well, that's not even what I mean. They're the reason why, pe- why Adam Curtis is popular, is the bits where like... He just plays a really nice tune that you vaguely remember or you don't know or you've only heard once before or something while some really weird footage just plays out for like a minute and a half. And I suppose the thing is like, you know, I just saw these when I started seeing these films when I was in my like late teens, early 20s. And there just wasn't really anything like it because the Internet wasn't as much of a force for video as it is now. So you couldn't see like weird videos or you know, stream like, I don't know, Haroon Faruqi film or something. I don't know. Like it was just, it was on the BBC and you could just watch it and they would play Burial and you'd only ever heard Burial like, I don't know, on the radio really late at night before. And it was just really cool to like see, to be like, oh, this person with the BBC likes Burial and they're putting over some really weird footage that I think is really cool. Whereas now you could just do that. You could like, 
there's probably just loads of YouTube videos of like burial songs over like montages of weird old footage. It's probably like, you know, a, a YouTube video that's called 24 hour burial ASMR being played in the room next to you while your parents have an argument in the other room. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's very generous to the Adam Curtis films. I think uh, what I enjoyed most of about them was they seemed to reveal something about power structures in in my 20-year-old mind that I hadn't seen before. And it's interesting that he hates conspiracy so much because I I think he does do that in a way in in a way that conspiracies work actually. And in the interview that I listened to, it was with Mark Mode and Adam Curtis was kind of saying, well, you know, the problem is with today, the problem is with nowadays is that everyone takes fragments of information and then connects them. (laughs) And he was like, and that's exactly what I'm fighting against. And I was like, well, hang on a second. That's the thing, isn't it? It's like there's limits. I read an article, someone sent me an article in the Tribune, which is like a leftist trying to defend Adam Curtis. And to do it, to like, he's got a good argument, but for the argument to work, he basically has to say like, Adam Curtis says he's a journalist, but he's more of an experimental novelist. And also he says he's a neoliberal. The only time he's ever talked about politics is like, he either says he doesn't have any politics or he's a neoliberal. Libertarian, he's a libertarian, no? Yeah, he said he's libertarian, but he's also, he has also said, I mean, it's a very clunky quote and it seems to me to be like a joke or something, but technically, yeah, he said he's a libertarian, a neoliberal, or that he doesn't, he's not interested in politics. So you have to discount all of that as well, or that it's some kind of like performance of a character which is about patrician BBC authority or something, or like fake neutrality or something. But it is a bit annoying because it's like, at some point, you just, yeah, like, you have to accept that that is what he does. He gets brings together fragments and kind of in a web of associations that gives you the feeling of revelation or the feeling of, I don't know, kind of being enlightened about something without actually, like, going past those connections. But that's the beauty, is he, he makes you feel, and that's what Oscar said when he was, when we, like, 10 minutes in, he said, like, there's a name for this moment, it's confirmation bias. And is that... You watch it and you're enlightened, but you're enlightened about something that you already kind of feel felt was truth. Like, I think that's, like, I think that's something super interesting about like the audience and, and the way he thinks about audience and what the audience gets. And I think, yeah, I, I, I'm always conf- I'm confused about how much, because to me that feels like a very artwork relationship to an audience, mm, right? To kind of like create yeah. those feelings and provoke you from like your your leftist I don't know position or something to, to watch something and kind of like feel that you're learning that what you always felt was truth is truth. Um, <laughs> yeah, like you had a deep conviction that the world was wrong, but you didn't really have any details or any knowledge about why that was. And he's like, oh, here's all these things that you could confirm that feeling with. Yeah, like feelings of, and especially now, you know, conspiracy theory and stuff. So when he's like, you know, talking about the Illuminati, talking about... I feel like it's interesting because the choices, like I know there's a lot of books that have come out in the last like five years about the cultural revolution in China. I was thinking about William Davis, like it's, it's the things he's looking at, they're not, it's not like he's doing research on like very unique things. It's the opposite. He's doing, he's finding these references, you know, the, the, the whole um, JFK thing, has is part of the that, that like big documentary on conspiracy like all of those things are things are already out there in the ether and he's just reflecting them back to you in a way that 
yeah, make you feel that you understand power and from a leftist position, you kind of understand how, you know, who is manipulating, how the right is moving, like all these different things make sense. And it's kind of a nice feeling. Yeah, totally, yeah. I was talking to a friend yesterday, I talked to Daniel Oliver, we went for a walk and we were talking about conspiracies and he was like, I think it's a real shame that like, it's a real shame that you can't just play with conspiracies because they're really fun to do. And like to to make a really good conspiracy, if you could do it outside of the, you know, the politics of the world, if you could just play with history and make connections without any consequence, it would be a really nice practice to do. I think it's also different because I come from a different like historical context, right? So I come from like places that had like very long military dictatorships and, you know, information was controlled and people mm. would disappear. So in a sense, you know, when you think about growing up in Brazil, for example, where during the military dictatorship, people would disappear and you would just like, you know, know, you know, that somebody had lost a member of their family. But at the same time, in like the the kind of like history that was allowed to exist, there was no space for that because no one was being, dis- no, no one was being killed. Um, so you, you were living like these two realities, but the kind of the, the power balance, so kind of like the real reality was the conspiracy reality in a sense, was the, oh, this is weird because we're feeling these things. Well, the real history was the one that was kind of fake. So I think for me, then being here and seeing these things kind of like in a different Organized differently, hierarchical, is, 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 is annoying in that sense, because I feel like the conspiracy could be the place where you're actually having serious discussions about the stuff that is happening, like that you can feel or something. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I just... No, it does, I just feel- it does, yeah. I think, I think for me, when I think about conspiracies, like re- real conspiracies... When I think the, the ones I think about are things like Grenfell, where it's all on the surface and there's no real need for like much revelation. Like the in, the inquiry into the Grenfell fire has basically been one confirmation after another of deferred responsibility and inadequate fire testing and the ability of companies to kind of avoid being the place where responsibility falls. I mean, that's the thing with something like the Grenfell inquiry. It's just like you don't need conspiracies to sort of see the true horror of how power works, how decision making and governance works, and what its kind of impact is. I think that's the thing with with me about the Adam Curtis films is that if you want to look at how power works, you don't need to make connections between like Russian oligarchs and uh, and mm, conceptual yeah. artists. You just have to look at the Grenfell inquiry or how disparities with COVID deaths or or whatever. It's all it's all there. Or how people are paid. Or you know, it's a bit. Oh, that police thing that came out where like a police inquiry has revealed that the police still don't know why they keep treating non-white people really badly. <laughs> that was the finding <laughs> of the police inquiry. <laughs> I love to meet the like PR person who put that story out. <laughs> Christ. Oh, but the thing I was going to say was, I suppose also what you've got, what, what we know is that Curtis works with the BBC archive and it, it's an amazing archive, but it's the BBC archive. So it, it, it has gaps and it has things that it focuses on. Like, for example, I thought some of the craziest footage came from the Kenyan re-education camps for the Mau Mau liberation movement who were kind of being fought uh, at the end of the... Uh, British kind of colonial state in Kenya, it does seem to me that actually that 
film maybe was chosen because it was just some really good footage rather than it any, having anything directly to do with all the other stuff which is taking place in these very particular geographic locations of England, uh, Russia and um, China, which he explicitly does say at the start. He says this is a story about the West and China and Russia. And then so to just kind of throw in a bit of Kenyan footage seems... I mean, I know he's illustrating a point, but it seems like... Maybe he's just illustrating a point. But it's also like hyper emotional, right? Like I feel like this. Um, what's the writer that you like, Ross? Like Azulai? Is that her name? Who writes about, you know, for the ethics of photography and kind of like. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's an ethics. What's there's her name, really sorry? Ariella Azulai. Okay. Civil Imagination. Because okay, I think there's like a. I've, I've, I found that footage really disturbing in a sense that just like the kind of the showing of that brutality. Yeah. To illustrate a point about I don't know how that kind of like reflects in you know racism in, in, in Britain in the mainland or something. But it's like those are people. Like there's something about the representation of those bodies and how that was shown that felt really callous and 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 that is serving a purpose that is not like you said, it's not to illustrate what is what was happening there. It's to make us feel things. Yeah, exactly. About something else. I was gonna ask you, Ross, because I think I think that's one of Azulai's Azulay's points, isn't it? Like the way she talks about photography. It is, it is. I think that's something interesting that I find about Adam Curtis is that he is just a te- uh, he feels to me like he just makes television programs and I don't think he worries about that sort of stuff so much he's like a t- like his job title is like producer for the BBC I think he's literally employed by the BBC on a full-time basis as a sort of executive producer which I think is like super interesting like he's very much just about t- TV I think that's how he sees his he sees his role and he should and i think that's 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 good really but i think that one i think he should stop saying he's a journalist i think he should just stop saying that i think that's like a really weird thing to say i don't know why he says it because he wasn't really a journalist when he started he's always been a, a producer and director that's that's always what he's done even when he worked for like esther ranson or whatever he came in on a bbc training scheme like and then the second point is that um i think what's particularly striking about that Kenyan footage in this show for me is that I'd always thought that all of his footage was used in that way as in it always had a kind of tenuous relationship to information and was much more about evocation and emotion but watching this one carefully I realized actually no he's got some particular stories he's telling and then he just throws that in and yeah maybe that's it's a bit too powerful for the very slight point like Andrew was saying that it's actually supporting and again this is the thing like I, I don't really understand how much he's being like self-critical or not but he's like he's making a point about how you know white British people do not see black people as human and then he's choosing to choose you know to show a, a certain set of films that he can only show because he doesn't see those people as humans mm. because he wouldn't do that if those were like white British people bodies yeah. there's, a, there's like a body of a child that is on the floor for God. like you know what I mean that wouldn't happen as in from what I read from him and without watching the other episodes I still don't understand if yeah if he's being self-critical or, or if this is just uh, an accident or you know or like that is so obvious but he doesn't see it so he let it pass anyway I was just going to ask people what they thought about his voice in the films, he seems to do a lot. And I've not thought about that before. And it was just something, Matt, you said 
earlier that made me think that he seems there's something very particular about the way that he talks his accent and I think what you said made me wonder how much of it was a was a character or was a performance and how much he kind of played on that voice I have a theory (laughs) a Curtis style theory I think he has managed to carve out a little space in the BBC which is based on and this is from reading interviews and stuff. Uh, he's managed to carve out a little space in the BBC where, like, he promises to not spend very much money. Maybe not quite, not so much now, but back when he first, in the mid-90s, when he was first being allowed to make the w- slightly weirder stuff. And I think one of those things is, like, yeah, recording a voiceover yourself for, like, a three-hour film is, like, really a lot cheaper, especially if maybe his writing process involves re-editing and re-recording things. It's really, really... Having just worked with a voice actor that is not me, you can't just drop in someone else's voice and replace your your kind of test monologue. Like I tried to do that and realised that this person just speaks ever so slightly slower than me. And over the course of a 12 minute video, that basically adds up to her speaking for 18 minutes where I spoke for 12. So if you did that with a whole series, if he's writing and recording and everything's all happening at the same time, like it just wouldn't work. And I wonder whether that's basically kind of then just carried on and now i suppose he's associated with his own voice isn't he yeah yeah but what do you take how do you hear that voice andrea because because people talk about it as though it gives a specific bbc kind of authoritative voice but to me it sounds more like like he doesn't sound like some specific authoritative bbc man he just sounds like a middle class guy with a nasal voice so i i have to say i don't know if you're gonna leave on the podcast but as you know i have massive daddy issues and to me <laughs> Like Curtis would talk, like my dad would talk, which would talk like, you know, the guy from Nexon would talk. Is like this really approachable, but super not, it's like an authoritative, patronizing, very, you know, sounding like they're, they're kind of like saying edgy or things and making, con- there's like a specific, oh, how do you say this? Con man. It's like the intellectual con man voice, mm. which is super charismatic. And it's part of kind of like provoking those feelings of like, you know, seeing that as this knowledge that is self-reflective. And I think the whole idea of him as the author, again, is kind of related to those similar uh, relations or like, you know, ways to establish relations of trust. And um, because he's not talking like, I don't know, but like Oscar and I watch lots of either education, YouTube stuff like Crash Course, or we watch a lot of like documentaries, like with people that, you know, are speaking from like academic authority. And I think there's there's a specific type of way in which you um, create a bonding in relation to knowledge that is saying, and that's the journalistic thing as well, is saying I'm not an academic because, you know, experts, mm. what does historians actually know? I'm one of you. <laughs> I'm just very, very, like, just much more smarter than you, but I'm one of you, which I think would, yeah, I think it makes a big difference that it's his voice and the way he talks. Mm. But, but again, that might be just, childhood trauma so i don't know okay so what is if he was a character you know in a situation like if if he's in the pub what's he like i don't that's what i don't quite get is like what, oh, he's, what the pub, he's my dad oh right <laughs> for you it's your dad <laughs> where is he you know in what situation are you being given this knowledge in a really and in what kind of way is he giving you the knowledge do you know what i mean in the kind of way that there's like six dudes sitting around him, buying him beers right. yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, listening okay. to him talk about the economy and how it's all about the Chinese and cryptocurrency and right, yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't know, and whatever. Like a politician can do that. 
you know, like just natural ease to talk about something with authority, but in a relaxed, sort of non-assertive, well, assertive, but not pushy. But it's also that way that has nothing has nothing at stake, right? So, yeah. you know, if, again, like if my dad is at the pub and he's like, yeah, because, you know, I don't know, Freud knew Chinese and that's why he wrote that. And he can look at people's faces. And if you see people's faces going like, <laughs> then you just, you know, because it, it doesn't matter. Like yeah. there's no, he's not someone who's acting on that knowledge. Yeah. He likes a good story. Although... Again, with him being BBC, it will be fact-checked to a certain extent. Yeah, not in the way that you're talking about, Andrea, where, you know, he's kind of... Uh, it's not like an academic kind of situation. But yeah, he can't... It can't be falsehoods. He can't kind of spread lies. I was just going to say, I think... But I think it's not fact-checked by the journalistic people. It's like it's like the... What's the name? Andrew Hagen in, like, the LRB talking about Grenfell. He might be a no, journalist. No, it's not. Or- it's not. It is, it's fact-checked by a fact-checking team at the BBC. Stuart Lee talks about this. His comedy shows get fact-checked. Like that's, Yeah, but what is, what is fact-checked? Like, fact-checked at The New Yorker is different than fact-checked at The Guardian. No, I'm, I'm sure it is, but it's the BBC fact-checking it rather than... There's no, Adam Curtis doesn't have a department. There's no department that he... I suppose he passes it on to the fact-checking department for like... I don't. Yeah, you're right. I don't know if it's like BBC News or BBC Entertainment. No, but it will be... No, the BBC, I'm speculating. Good. But because the BBC's... Yeah, because the BBC... And this is... Well, this is something that we should look at, actually. But because mm. it's funded by the taxpayer, it will have like a use of resources sort of bit of governance. The fact that it needs to be factually correct isn't a reputational thing like The Guardian or The New Yorker or whatever, or other news outlets. It will be something, it will be statutory written into its terms of reference. And, you know, like it will be an actual thing. And it, I'm sure it will have like a separate department. But I think your point about investment is really, it just does stand, doesn't it? The, the tone of voice and the way he's associating things is it's someone who knows that the next day those people aren't going to go out and do more research for themselves. They're going to be kind of like, cool, Freud knew Chinese, that's so interesting. And then just use that in every conversation that they have for the next, like, three years or Yeah, but, um, and maybe that, that, that was a bad example because, I mean, as far as I know, that is not true. But um, <laughs> maybe need to rewind, but it would be something like, I don't know, I don't even remember, like, but my dad had, like, this, you know, he has this connection, like, has one of these epiphanies that is, like, he constructed is, you know, the changing architecture because of um, ships, and then he'll go and then he'll be like, and then yeah. how is architecture going to change because of the internet? And then pff, blew people's minds. And then, or, and, and then he'll build on that. So it, 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 I, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of falsehood. I was just yeah, thinking okay. about that freedom of making connections and then just playing with them because you can see people are... I think that I was just reading this book by Andrea Butner who did a PhD about 10 years ago about shame. And it's really great. It's a really lovely book. But her first chapter is about this minor freud essay ironically thinking it's about freud that's about creative writing and about fiction and popular fiction and she uses it in a really interesting way and it's a really insightful bit of writing that she produces about shame and the structure of shame but she includes she includes an excerpt of the essay in the back of the book and reading the excerpt i'm just like i do not know where you got your analysis of this from so it's like it's it's a bit like i don't know creative 
reading or something. But I, I suppose it's the impact of that when you're writing about affect theory and art history is just so different to when you're writing about global politics and colonialism or something. Or the outcome of that kind of creative play with source material is just really different. So this is the thing about, you know, fact-checking, our process of like constructing the truth is like journalism comes with very specific rules that are very different from like, you know, sociology are very different from literature, are very different from all these different things. And I think that's what's interesting about his constant reclaiming that he's a journalist. Yeah. Because he's claiming a very specific framework that you know for production of truth that it's about authority and connection to reality and factuality and neutrality and all these different things well you know he was he was doing this and saying i'm just like a you know an essayist or a, you know an artist or a literary critic we will have a completely different engagement with this yeah. i think we will have a different engagement with these essays there are a few there are a few bits that i thought were strange readings actually because i just listened to something else about mk ultra like not that long ago you know the cia program and the way curtis describes it is almost as if they're wiping they want to wipe people's brains and then see if they can implant at some point he almost implies that the cia might implant positive memories back in but actually the explicit aim of mk ultra was to create like was to brainwash people the possibility of brainwashing to turn people into assassins who could be kind of switched on at any moment. That was the promise that was made at the start of this program. Of course, it never got anywhere. And as Curtis said, all they could do was wipe brains. They couldn't ever implant any information back into people's brains. But I thought that was a weird vibe to like not mention that it's like, well, maybe he does go on to mention it. But yeah, it's like a uniquely dark and true conspiracy that took place. Yeah, I was thinking, I don't know, I'm not going to remember the name now, but... Remember the guy from, um, I watched the you know, Bomber documentary from, uh, like, it's the German Adam Curtis, basically. Oh. Um, so it's this guy who does documentaries. And apparently he's compared to Curtis a lot. But he does these amazing documentaries because he holds on to the uncertainty. And that's what I find fascinating comparing to Curtis. So he has this other, this one that is on Canopy that is about when like Germany reunited they kind of got all these American game shows and these American game shows were done by these psychologists who was trying to I don't know make people believe something about individualism or whatever and he you know it feels like very Adam Curtis and then he goes and he goes and finds the people and he kind of like builds this all these connections and then he slowly just like destroy those connections and at the end you're like actually you leave knowing nothing <laughs> like because it is impossible to know and probably just like a really stupid idea and a lot of coincidence that sounded really really you know that there was something there and there wasn't and so part of me hopes that he's got that Kurt's gonna do something more like that on this one that he's like that he's gonna allow you know these things to be yes these things might be connected or some of these things but also they might not mm. it's like the opposite process but could have the same like engagement with the viewer in the sense that it could be a really exciting feeling to have all these things kind of like dissolve in front of your eyes but yeah it leaves you in a state of partial confusion which is probably more close to how truth really works than this feeling of like revelation or something i wanted to ask a question about titles he uses titles but in a really strange way like what why do you think he sometimes puts words up on the screen but quite often doesn't do you remember some of the words that he puts um, up on the screen i did you do yeah i do um i remember in the 
beginning, he has like a thing where it's like a, a video of like Obama and it's like, if you liked this, and then it's a video of Biden and it says, you'll love this. I, I remember that bit. I don't remember the other parts where I used. I don't remember any part, but... Do you not remember that bit, Andre, where it's right at the start? The, I remember now that Oscar said it, but I don't, yeah. Mm, yeah. I, it's, I think it's because I watched that part twice. I think that's also like on the trailer, maybe. And it, yeah, that bit struck me that maybe he's just like, just thought that, made that for like quickly for the trailer and then kept it in because he thought it was funny or something. And then the, uh, the other one that really struck me was Operation Mindfuck gets its own like kind of glowing title for, for seemingly no reason because it's a very minor little bit like the the prankster's story of putting the Illuminati letter in Playboy and stuff. I just feel, I don't know, when I see his films, I feel like he edits like someone paints. Like yeah. I wouldn't, like someone, you know, just just does as it goes and move things and then there's not like an aesthetic cohesive thinking like I'm going to organize this and I'm going to that is quite instinctive but I don't know I, I never read him talking about how he makes them so it goes back to your point Matt about the cost of them it's like I think was it he said if we read the same article it's like 80,000 pounds to make oh, right. and I think he literally just sits on a laptop and does it himself as far as I can, that's the impression that I got. That's what he was saying, yeah. I was really surprised there's no research, you know, just a few interns or something like scanning the hard drives. That He was claiming that he watches stuff on Fast Forward, basically. <laughs> yeah, which is like, that is fucking brutal, if so, and all respect to him, because that is a lot of... You know, like he's saying he gets these footage, hard drives sent over from like whatever the old BBC studio that was in Beijing or something, and he just gets all the hard drives from 19, the 60s sent over. He gets them digitised and sent over, and then he just watches all of it really, really fast. And he's like, oh, that bit's good, and then just, like, takes it. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, in a way, it's like an, a career-long residency in the BBC archives. That's how you could think of it. Yeah. Although he's not an artist. Oh, no, sorry, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Andrea Ross and Oscar for joining me. We'll be back soon with episode two. Goodbye. <laughs>